something um, essential to say about the symbolic before we move on. Okay, good. Okay, so here's here's a key thing. So if Lacan, if, if you want to say, you know, Lacan, you know, we talk about Heidegger's the thinker of being, right? Um, Merleau-Ponty's the thinker of perception. Certain Lacanians will probably disagree with me on this, but I think it's fair to say that Lacan is the thinker of lack. Because uh, all of these things, whether we talk about the phallus, objet petit a, uh, jouissance, uh, dos ding, they're all different types of lacks, right? And they all have different statuses, but Lacan is fundamentally concerned with lack. And he doesn't think lack truly enters into the human equation until the signifier, right? And by the signifier, he uses this like how the French use the term the other. It, mean, it means the others. It means, uh, the signifier means signifiers. It means language. And sometimes, of course, he's talking about a particular signifier, but it's the signifier can usually be read as language, the symbolic order, um, etc. So, Here's the thing. The world doesn't lack anything in and of itself. Um, it's only language that produces lack. Things are only missing or absent because we have used uh, a language system to determine that they belong in a certain place. Now, his, Lacan's example is the Dewey Decimal System that they used in libraries. So say you walk in and you want to you wanna read Sartre's Being Nothingness, and you go over to the philosophy section, you look to the shelf with the S's, and you notice that uh, where being and nothingness should be, it's gone, right? And you say, oh, it's lacking, it's missing, it's not there, it's absent. It's only the signifier, it's only language that produces this absence, right? Absence depends on integration into language. And this is fundamental, right? This is going to shape our, our very subjectivity. Uh, because it's with us that things lack. We, I mean, think about it. To be a desiring subject, to say I desire, means to lack something. Whatever it is that you desire, you lack. You wouldn't desire it, it, desire it if you had it. And so when Lacan talks about the barred subject or the divided subject or the subject of desire, or you know, he's talking about a, a person with a lack, somebody who's lacking something. So lack is this fundamental concept in Lacanian psychoanalysis, and we're going to see that it takes on a number of different shapes and forms. And so, but it's important to realize that lack is. Uh, oh, somebody just mentioned in the chat needs. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would like to go. That would take us too far off course. But Lacan does focus on needs, and need, maybe we'll circle back around to needs a little bit. But there's this dialectic in Lacan that goes from needs to demands to desire, and Lacan was really big on this dialectic in the the, the earlier period of his work. It's and a big so, part of the mirror phase, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, I mean, well, yeah. Here's the thing: to talk about needs, we're going to have to talk about drives and how, yeah, what that, and then we get into demand. It's a whole other thing. Uh, so maybe we'll come back to that if we have a chance, but... Um, For now, yeah, though, it's needs. It's the dialectic between what three things, though? It goes from needs to demand to desire. It's considered uh, like this Lacanian dialectic. You move from one to the other. 
Okay. Yeah, if we if we have a chance, uh, that creepy fellow, we'll uh, we'll come back to that. I just erased it to write the other thing, and I made space on this other side here for lack. But you know, when we're th when you're thinking of lack. Uh, I, I would point back at this trophy, right? The, your ideal ego is to be that kiddo who gets the thing. You know, you know the thing. Once you get it, then you get you get you gain the re respect or recognition from a community or a person that you aspire to be elevated in. And um, the uh, the fact that you lack that thing that you need is probably why you're such an awkward fucking teenager, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, it was a big part of it. It's like, you, you've got ideas that there are things that you need before you can even respect yourself. So, well, and this is, I mean, we'll, we'll come back to this because we need to get into fantasy and all this other stuff to start talking about it. But our lack, I mean, this is what's so fundamental to the kid. And this is a dynamic that we take with our, take with us our whole life is, I mean, this is where you can really, uh, affect people, right? If you say the wrong thing to them, if you point out something they lack, and that's precisely what they they're trying to cover over, this is like psychic damage to them, right? And huge and problem with toxically masculine dudes, especially. Right? Yeah, exactly. This is where Lacan is very helpful when it comes to this this problem, um, because the whole point is, I, I, you know, the toxic masculine kind of mindset is I have to be the subject that lacks nothing. Well. That is as imaginary as it gets. We all lack. I mean, you're not a human being unless you lack. And um, lack in this fundamental sense, and then, of course, this is going to carry out to particular lacks. But anyway, okay, so we've talked about the imaginary. We've talked about the symbolic, and there's stuff that I could add on, but let's let's get to the real Let's get to the real. Let's get down into the, the real nitty gritty shit. Yeah, thank you, by the way, for that follow. But okay, now we're shifting gears to the real. And once again, we've got Bob from Twin Peaks. We've got Das Ding. We've got repressed desire, trauma, which, by the way, that's what really Bob is all about, right? A repressed trauma, probably. But yeah. anyway, then we got COVID-19. You know, because we're going about society's working. Everything makes sense. Reality. And then... Some das ding comes out of nowhere, fucks it all up. Yeah, and so no, I mean, so there, there's uh, well, das ding. So okay, I'm torn on whether or not I even want to go into das ding because I feel like it will take us too far off track. And here's the here's people. Do the you see how frustrating it is to talk to a Lacanian? Like, let's quick aside. This is why Lacanians won't talk, like because. They, they've been trying to read Lacan all this time. By the way, someone in the chat have been like, will you help me read Ecree? A lot of people do try to read Ecree thinking that's the one. It, by the way, for the folks who saw it, it, it looks like it's spelled Ecritz. It's, it's Ecree. But anyway, point being, that's not a readable text and that's not where to go for it. You want to read the seminars. Um, but even then, most people haven't read more than a few of the seminars, much less the essential ones. And so usually it's people read some Zizek talking about Lacan. And, uh, but the people who... I mean, I've I've heard I've heard Mikey express or Michael express a lot of frustration on this on this note. It's just like it's really hard to find people who are willing to speak about these com these concepts because fantasy is not the imaginary, uh, fantasy is not desire. Needs are not demands. De uh, needs are not enjoyment. Enjoyment is not desire. All of these things have different meanings. They oh, work in different anybody. they work in different registers. Am I getting am I getting followed, rated, hosted? I don't know what that alert was for, but thank you. 
So anyway, it's complicated. So briefly, right? Let's let's give a definition of a real to start off with. The real is all of that, all of those dynamics, aspects, things that are repressed, that are in the unconscious, that don't seem to have any bearing, any reality whatsoever. Uh, don't we don't notice them? We're not aware of them in our everyday uh, conscious reality, and yet they're there, and they are fundamentally structuring our reality more than any of the shit that we're conscious of. And there's moments when this stuff breaks through, right? That it ceases to be repressed, it ceases to be unconscious, and it explodes into conscious reality, and it has a way of exploding, exploding it or shattering it, and this this works on the individual level which is if you're you know you suffer a horrific trauma right and it gets repressed it has a way of constantly eating at you constantly returning in various forms and it's going to continue to return in in various forms until it's dealt with right until it's worked through um and at, at the social level right i use the example of coronavirus i mean you know Two months ago, we, we thought, oh, it's just some virus, not that big of a deal. And then, of course, you know, look what it does to our con conscious social reality. Our whole world's been turned upside down by this thing that just explodes from out of nowhere and uh, shatters the coordinates of our social reality. And uh, so the real is basically, you can just think of it, it's all the stuff that's in our blind spot. It's It's... It's the aspects of ourselves that we're not aware of. It's the desires that we have we're not aware of. It's all of those, those you know, nature in a sense has this real dimension, right? There's all the, we think we've mastered nature because of science and technology, but we haven't. Nature can throw us a curveball at any second. And all of these aspects, these unconcealed uh, aspects of nature or of ourselves, that we're not aware of, they all count as the real. And so the reason it's the reason like I think he talked about it and called it the real, and a lot of the times it was capitalized, and the reason he contrasts this with reality is the real is the really real. It's what really is structuring our world and ourselves. And yet it's it seems as if it has nothing it has no reality at all. When, when viewed from the perspective of our waking conscious reality. And so there's all kinds of various elements of the real. One, uh, the most famous, is uh, objet petit a. And Dave, if you should probably write, if you haven't already, write that on the board. I think you did. Okay. It's a French term, and... If you translate, it doesn't work in translation. And if you do it literally, it's object small o, which yeah means next to nothing, right? Um, the, the the much more helpful term for this is the object cause of desire. But here's the problem: when, and this is one of the big obstacles to get past when you get into reading Lacan. The way Lacanians use the word object is incredibly confusing. At least us Americans, us in the English-speaking world, when we think objects, we think about physical things that take up space, right? We think about things that can be weighed on a scale, 
when we use the word object. And that's not what, that's not how Lacanians use this term. Right. There's an object of a sentence. Right. Exactly. Right. It's probably right. more like that kind of an object, right? Well, like phantasmatic objects, right? But the thing is, when we talk about objet petit a in its purest form, it's no thing. It's just an empty, it's just a lack. It's just this X that we posit that, I mean, it doesn't take up any space. It's, you can't weigh it. Now, we, it's like this, this thing, this factor, this cause of desire, we, we end up attaching it or associating it with actual things, right? But it's not these things themselves. And in fact, let's put it like this. I, this is always helpful. If there were no human beings, there would be no objet petit a, uh, uh, objets petit a. There would be no causes of desire. And so they depend, their reality depends on us, right? But in a weird twist, our reality as desiring subjects depend on them. And, you know, there's so much to say about objet petit a. And uh, this is, I, I wrote a whole blog post devoted to this because it's, it's such a long a, one long and nuanced concept and it does so much the best way to uh, approach it is to say okay look there's objects we desire there's things that we th sit around and think oh if I could just be married to a person like this or if I just had a house that with, with certain things in it right or if I had that car or if I had that job right there's things that we are aware that we desire or the objects of desire and the objects of desire we're aware of at a conscious level, or at least a pre-conscious level. Uh, there's no, there's no surprise. Like, yes, I, I think about that thing, I desire that thing, I'm pursuing that thing, I want that thing. But the, the unconscious aspect of desire is objet petit a, which is the cause of desire. It's that which causes you to desire the object of your desire, right? And this is the much more interesting concept for Lacan. Like, okay, we have all kinds of objects we desire, but what what is it about them? What causes us to desire those objects? And this, this cause is always out of sight. We're not aware of this cause of desire. And the way I liken it, uh, what I liken it to in the blog post is the relationship between a ballerina on stage dancing and the spotlight that makes the ballerina visible. Um, when you're at a dance recital and you're seeing a ballerina perform, your attention is focused on the ballerina. You're not aware of the spotlight itself, and yet the spotlight is what's making this performance possible. It's what's lighting up the ballerina uh, and setting the like the ambiance. Right? There's, there's such a difference between um, you know a performance that's spotlit opposed to one that's not. And so, the in in this case, the objet petit all would be uh, or, or the cause would be the spotlight and the object of desire would be the dancer, right? And so when you're walking around, think about all the stuff you see on a daily basis. Most of it you don't desire. Something's causing you to desire the things that you desire. And that is what objet petit a is. And again, this concept, you know, it, it just keeps blossoming out. It gets bigger and bigger and richer and richer. But Simply put, here's what it is. It's a virtual object, and I use virtual in the term in the way that Deleuze uses it, which is to say, it's it's something that we posit to be real, that's out there, 
and yet it's not an actual physical thing. And so what happens is this. We were going to talk about Oedipus Complex, but Lacan ends up later, he talks less about Oedipus Complex, and he comes up with this other theory of how we become socialized, right? Uh, and, and, and instead of talking about the mother and the father and all that, he ends up talking about S1 and S2 and objet petit a. But it, it, to, to take all the jargon out of it, right, here's what happens. At some point when you're a kid, some external authority is going to step in and say, you cannot live an existence of immediate gratification. You can't just do whatever you want whenever you want and experience the type of bodily sensations you want whenever you want. There has to be limits put on your body, put on your uh, your physical reality in order for you to become socialized, to take on the norms of your society, right? And this, I mean, if we think about it in terms of Lacan's concept of the Oedipus complex, it has to do with you have to separate from your mother's body, right? You're, you're, and by mother, again, I mean primary caregiver. The mother could be a, a biological man. But whoever your primary caregiver is, the kid has been attached to this person uh, since day one. A human child requires constant care and attention. And at some point, you know, the, 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 the immediate gratification the child gets from the other has to be broken. And this is what Lacan at one point calls symbolic castration. And it's not castration in the Freudian sense of, oh, I, you know, if I don't do what my dad is demanding of me, he's going to cut my penis off. It's not that at all. Symbolic castration, what's castrated is just you living in a state of immediate gratification. Now you have to live according to certain guidelines, principles, rules, i.e. you have to live in accordance with the law. And so, in a weird sense, to enter into the symbolic order, to become socialized, you have to give up this immediate gratification. And yet it's not really, an immediate gratification isn't an object. It's not some literal thing you give up. But the very fact that law or the big other, uh, or the symbolic order, demands this of you, you're sacrificing something, and after you make the sacrifice, this becomes a structure. That thing that you gave up, that little, oh, I, I had to sacrifice it to become a social subject, that, what falls out, as Lacan puts it, is objet petit a. And in this sense, this quote object that which isn't really an object but it functions like an object you think it's this missing piece of yourself that if only i could get this thing back that i had to sacrifice i would have full ontological completeness i would be whole and the point is the thing that you sacrifice the thing you gave up isn't a thing at all it's a it's a weird effect of language or law uh, you know living in accordance with certain principles uh, certain norms, and so it's as if you gave up. And here's the here's the term I'm going to add on here. It's as if you gave up this primordial jouissance. And jouissance is this French term, and I prefer to leave it untranslated. Although a lot of Lacanians, Zizek included, translate it as enjoyment. I don't like enjoyment because I think for us in the English-speaking world, enjoyment carries too many. I guess you would call them soft kind of, oh, enjoyment's light entertainment or fun or whatever. 
And uh, Jouissance carries this much more intense, extreme, even traumatic sense. And so retroactively, once we're in language, once we've started to become socialized, it's as if we retroactively say, oh, there was this immense, intense enjoyment we had before we had to start playing by the rules, and I had to sacrifice this enjoyment. But in reality... You like shitting whenever you want. Exactly. You shit whenever That's you want. That's a big deal for a fucking baby. So in terms of traumas, it's like first you're torn out of the womb where things were whole and you didn't have a sense of self beyond like your heart, whatever sounds. And then, and then you're torn from the wholeness and the wonder of all that into this fucking stinking reality where at least you can shit when you want to. And then all of a sudden you're getting in trouble when you're doing that. And, and all the people in your life are manipulating you constantly, constantly manipulating you to get you to stop shitting, to get you to stop pissing, to get you to stop screaming. And, 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 and or breastfeeding or breastfeeding. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the thing for Lacan, you know, with Freud, there are these primary objects the kid is focused on the breast, the gaze of the other, the look of the, the mother, right. Or, or, or the primary caregiver. Because uh, the prime, you could say attention, right, is this fundamental thing. There's been these studies where the, the, these horrible situations um, where the, there's been kids in orphanages that they never get any attention, they never get hugged, or they, they never get any recognition from the other. And these kids will die in infancy, not due to a lack of food or nourishment, but from a lack of attention. And so the attention of the primary caregiver is fundamental to the development of an infant. And so, it, you know, uh, voice is another one, right? Voice is, uh, yeah, somebody said Czech Republic. Yeah, that, that's what I was, that's what I have in mind. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there's these primary objects that the kid, you know, their, their early childhood, early infancy is based around, which is the breast, which, you know, it has a relation to the mouth, of the infant, uh, the the child's eyes, right? They're fix, focused on the gaze of the primary caregiver. The ears are fixated on the voice of the primary caregiver, and then feces, as you were saying, it's this fundamental object at play uh, that the child's sense of recognition and dignity. You know, I shit when I'm supposed to. That makes the other happy and makes me proud. And so there's this whole symbolic aspect to shitting when it's appropriate, right? Uh, Lacan famously said, human beings are the ones for whom shitting becomes a problem, right? Like he wants to say, that's how we define the human essence is, uh, unlike all other species, shitting is a problem for us. Um, and so, anyway, uh, to go back around, so the kid, the, 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 the kid who's gone through what we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the Oedipus complex, but we could also just call it socialization, um, the kid retroactively posits, oh, there was this immense enjoyment I had that I had to sacrifice to become socialized. And so it's like we reify this and turn it into this thing that we lost, this missing part of ourselves, and that is objet petit all. And so, you know, it, you, you get this these funny moments from cinema, right? Jerry Maguire, you complete me. Renee Zellweger's character, you could say in a Lacanian perspective, is as if she's she carries the objet petit ah. She carries the cause of desire, right? It's not an object of desire. It's the very thing that makes you desire in the first place. Well, you only desire 
you know, as a kid, you only desire precisely because you lack jouissance, because you lack satisfaction. It's been evacuated from your reality. Now it's not, everything's not immediate gratification. And we reify this loss and it becomes this thing that we're, it's, it's, it's like the proverbial donkey's carrot, right? It's the thing that keeps us desiring. We're constantly chasing it. And we think this thing's going to satisfy me. This thing's going to give me the sense of completion I've never had, but always yearn for. And you go from object to object to object, but you never actually get the objet petit off because it's an impossible object. You can't ever get it because it's not an actual thing. It's, for lack of a better term, it's a structure of the psyche. It's the effect of, quote, the signifier. This is something that happens to us given, you know, our the, 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 the kind of reality we have in infancy and what happens when language and norms and law get in, get in become part of our reality. And so what happens is that there's this this remainder, right? It, it, it's almost as if it's like this concentrated nugget of jouissance of this intense enjoyment. And we think if we ever get this thing that we're going to have a, a, an ontological wholeness that we always are chasing. And yet it's impossible, right? This is the whole thing. Like you are what, what defines your ontology is you are precisely the lack of this object. You are your pursuit of it. That's what that's what the Lacanian subject is, is the pursuit of this lost object. And now, does he transhistoricize this, or is this specific to capitalism for him? No, I, I, I don't. I mean, look, he. But here's what Lacan would say as far as the historical aspect, like you're talking about. You say, look, all I'm talking about, like I'm not analyzing people in quote, you know tribal societies or feudal societies, right? I'm analyzing modern subjects who are the products of capitalist society. And um, he, he could very well say that, hey, libidinal economies work differently in societies that had fundamentally different structures. Um, I don't think, you got to realize, the, and this is of fundamental importance when approaching Lacan's work, he says it time and time again. In every seminar, at one point, he'll say something along these lines, which is, hey, I'm not, I'm not a theorist. I'm not doing this for uh, like a Marxist political economy or a critique of ideology. I'm not doing this for the sake of philosophy. My seminar is, the, the, the fundamental purpose it serves is to train young analysts to become analysts, to train them for the work of psychoanalysis. And so a lot of us who are interested in philosophy will approach Lacan's work like we're getting ready to read Heidegger or Kierkegaard or Nietzsche, and we're not, because he has a fundamentally different purpose in holding these seminars. He wants mm. to train analysts to be good analysts, to be able to do the work of helping people deal with their traumas, their hang-ups, their fixations. And so... That's one of the tricks that we, we end up having as people who come from philosophy is we think this guy's going to be a philosopher and that his goal is to like make philosophical arguments that establish philosophical truths. No, that's not what he's doing. He's trying to say this is what you're going to deal with in the clinical setting and here are conceptual tools that help you manage, interpret, and uh, understand what you're dealing with. And so 
we always have to keep that in mind when approaching Lacan is he's not speaking from he would call it the 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 subject of enunciation right he makes a distinction between subject of enunciation and the subject of the enunciated or the subject of the statement which is to say there's what you say about yourself when you speak but then there's also the position from which you speak it right and we think that Lacan is speaking from the position of a philosopher, and he's not. He's speaking from the position of a clinician, somebody who every day is helping people work through their traumas and their their unconscious dynamics. So, you know, it's wrong to just go to him like he's gonna, like he's engaged in philosophy, right. even though you know 